What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode 82 of Land Parties from the Las Vegas Review Journal. I am your host, Lucas Agin, and my normal co-host, Ryan Smith, is not here this week. He and his significant other have welcomed their second child to the world, so he is busy with some daddy duty and and, uh, connecting with his newborn child, so a big congratulations to him, of course. But luckily, I am not alone, and I am very excited to be joined by a very special guest. He is a fellow member of the Game Awards Future Class, founder of Hey Listen Games, and a teacher in New York City, and a big proponent of using games as educational tools. Zach Hartsman is joining us. Zach, how are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you so much for inviting me on. We've been talking about it for a while, so I'm, finally, I'm happy that it's finally happening. Me too. Me too. This is one I've I've definitely been intrigued by, and I am excited to dive into that with you. But let me start at the beginning. What got you down the educational track uh, at at the start of your career? So when I went to college, I was undecided. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So you know, I did what other undecided people do. I signed up for liberal arts and took a whole bunch of liberal arts classes, and. I, but I, during the summers, I don't anymore, but for seven years, I worked at a summer camp. So I always knew that I liked working with kids and I'm good at working with kids. And I think it was my, the end of my sophomore year, one of my friends uh, learned about an internship at a local middle school um, around my college. And she thought it would be a good fit for me. So I applied for the internship for the following year. And for basically all of my junior year, I shadowed a middle schooler and just went to class with him just to help out in any capacity I could. And I really enjoyed it. So then from there, I decided to minor in education. My, my school didn't have a education program, but it did have a new minor. So I decided to mm-hmm. minor in education. I majored in history. And then from there, I then went to grad school to get a master's in teaching of social studies. And I've been teaching at the same school now for seven years. Very nice. That's awesome. You know, when you were uh, getting your first experience at that middle school, middle school always seems like such a (laughs) interesting time period for kids. Uh, How how was that? Was that like, uh, did anything surprise you when when you got your first real look at it? I wouldn't say anything was surprising to me. It's pretty much exactly what you'd expect. (laughs) Um, And in that regard, I knew that I didn't want to teach middle school. So I do teach high school students. I teach Mm -hmm. older students. my wife teaches middle school, and I just hearing her talk about her job, I know that it's not something I ever want to do myself. <laughs> what about the high school age kids do you think stood out to you? So this is a tricky question because I teach high school, but my school is a unique one. We are It's a public school, but it's an international transfer school. So all of my students are a, it's a 100% immigrant English language learner population. So none of them are native English language speakers. And... Because we're a transfer school, most of my students are overage. So I can have students that basically, because they need to come here and start high school over mm-hmm. in order to learn English in order to graduate, because there are, sta- unfortunately, standardized tests that they need to pass in English. If you don't have a good grasp of the English language, you're not going to be able to pass it. Right. So even if they're 18, 19, 20, they're going to come and start back over in ninth grade. So I, my current... This past year, I had students going up to 21 was the oldest I had. But I, it's the there's the classic story of in my first year of teaching, I was 23 and I had a 22-year-old in my classroom. <laughs> so it's, it is a little bit different than like the standard. The oldest you have is usually 18 in a, mm-hmm. in a, in a United States high school. Um, so it is a little bit different. I Like I teach, so like there's some of them are kids, but a, a number of them are legally adults. Nice. I mean, that's got to be a, a, a obviously a unique experience. Do you like that? Uh, you know, I at least I found when I was growing up that the older I got, the more genuine my my love of learning became. It wasn't just you know I have let's just get through it. It, it actually became something that we when you find interest, it kind of peaks their their mind. Yes and no. Some so we get very like extreme. Some of them are like in on education 100%. They come here, they want to learn English, they want to graduate, they want to go to college, they want to be able to find a job and English is 
important to do so. But you also get a lot of students who were like in their junior or senior year of high school in their home country and then getting thrown back to their freshman year can be like almost traumatizing. And you, so a lot of them put, will end up pushing back on that. And it's actually a struggle to get them. So we get a lot of extremes. What what about this school has stood out to you? You know, my, my brother is a teacher and he's actually teaching overseas right now. Uh, and, and I know he really enjoys that. But I, I know that that it was his experiences early on. It was finding that right fit for for a school was, was challenging at first. So what what about the school kind of latched on to you as, as a good fit? So I'm one of the few teachers who've only been at one school. I. Mm-hmm. Uh, as part of my grad school program, I was, you have to, before you can actually teach, you have to go through a semester of student teaching or a year of right. student teaching. And one of my semesters was, I was placed at this school. Mm-hmm. And so I did my student teaching there and a job opened up and my principal liked me. And she was like, would you like this position? It's like, yeah, obviously, because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even need to interview, right? So I didn't have to go searching. It was just kind of, kind of fell in my lap. I got lucky in that regard. Um, but I stuck around because I like one. I, I do. I love the population of students that I'm teaching. It's different than just the normal high school. Um, there's something fun about teaching language and content at the same time. Like seeing them grasp with English and like go from not knowing a single word in English in their freshman year to being fluent speakers in their senior year is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot more freedom in this kind of school because we don't need to take all of the same exams as uh, typical schools do because of the language barrier. Instead, we do like, they're called capstones. They're more project-based learning. So instead Mm -hmm. of just taking an exam, they do a full research project and write a paper and do a presentation on it instead, since that's those are skills that they need to develop as non-native English language speakers. Um, And because of that, I can kind of play around with my curriculum a lot more, which is why I've had the opportunity to bring video games into my teaching a lot. So I have a lot more freedom than most teachers will typically say they have. Yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. You know, speaking of video games, uh, I'm I'm assuming video games has been a big part of your life. When did your gaming journey start? And was it a natural fit for you? Did you see bringing uh, gaming into the education space as kind of a, a natural progression? So my gaming started back with the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh-huh. Um, even though I was born in 92, so that console was already out for a couple of years by that time. But when the Super Nintendo came out, my uncle actually gave me and my brother the original one. So we got like the hand-me-down console. So I actually missed the Super Nintendo generation. You know, it was, it was Mario and Duck Hunt. It was like, that's really, and Blades of Steel, this hockey game back in the day. <laughs> that's, that's really just what we played, just constantly on repeat. Uh, but then... The N64 is really what like started. Like if I if I was gonna label a point where I became a gamer, quote uh-huh. unquote, it was it was really the N64 and Ocarina of Time, that game in particular, right? It's my the name of my website. It's a namesake from Ocarina of Time, from the character Navi yelling "Hey, listen" at people. <laughs> so that that's really right. I was always a Nintendo guy. I had every single, with the exception of the Super Nintendo. Now I have a Super Nintendo because I went back and bought it. But I had every Nintendo console. My one, one of my brothers would get the PlayStation. My other brother would get the Xboxes. So between the three of us, we had, oh, see, we had all, all the all the bases covered. Um, but going into teaching, at first, I didn't really think I would use gaming in my classroom. I did want a video game club. In my first year, I did have a club after school where we would just play games for fun. Mm-hmm. And I say games, but really, it's just a Super Smash Brothers club. That's all we ever played. And... It was really in my third year of teaching that I started bringing games in. I had already used other pieces of pop culture like comics and movies and TV shows a lot because I like to find different mediums of content mm-hmm. for my students to engage with. And because those units and those lessons were going so well, I figured I should bring in something else I'm passionate about, which is video games, to see how that goes. I tried it out and it just worked really well. So I just kept finding more and more games to bring in in different ways. And now I like have elective courses like specifically focused on video games. Uh, next year, we're going to look into like game uh, development uh, cla- classes. Even just, so it's kind of evolved since just like bringing in a single game. 
Nice. I like that. I like that. You know, it, it's funny. It reminds me of, of one of my favorite classes in college was, was kind of like that where we read uh, graphic novels. Uh, you know, we read Watchmen, we read Queen's Gambit. And, and so it was like this mix of, of newer material and, and a variety of material that really gave you a, a sense of, of new perspectives and, and challenged your mind in new ways, which, which I always found fun. When you originally started bringing in games, what is the process like? Do you, I mean, do you, did you start just looking at broadly on broad themes that games were bringing to the table? Did you have specific angles in mind that you were going for? So when I use a game, it's very rare. I very rarely look for a game. Mm -hmm. It's almost always something that I've already played myself. And usually it's like, okay, here's the content I want to teach. So if I'm teaching a unit on immigration, I'll choose a game that touches on immigration so the game i use almost every year is papers please mm -hmm. um, because it deals with immigration and refugee crises and border patrol and in that game it puts you in the show shoes of a border patrol agent and you decide who can can and cannot come into your fictional country and it's it's like a it's a puzzle game but you basically just stamp yes or no on their documents or their passports and I usually pair that up with various uh, immigration restrictions throughout U.S. history, like the Chinese Exclusion Act or the uh, Immigration Act of 1924, which limited um, immigrants from South America and from Asia and Africa. So, and I like to use that game. That game is really, and that lesson is really only over the course of one day, where I have we play together as a class, and I have students take turns as the Border Patrol agent. And it's really interesting with my students in particular because they are all immigrants and some of them are just like, oh, let everyone come into the United States. And other ones are like, nope, got to follow the rules. And they're just like rejecting everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's so it's just it's I'll bring in games as an added text, right? They're not replacing anything right. that I'm already doing in my classroom. They don't replace primary sources or newspaper clippings or whatever. It's just like, here's an extra thing that we can use to support the content being taught in the classroom. Yeah, definitely. You know, and it it, it made me think uh, immediately of a game like Valiant Hearts. And I remember playing that, that that was like such a enriching experience. And, and I think they teamed up with, uh, I'm going to blank on it, but a couple of, of uh, uh, places that they partnered with gave them a, a wealth of, of information to present. And so do, do you see games like that as, I know you said as kind of added text there, where do you see the value going forward and, and how do you think kind of broad-based schools can integrate games to be more enriching for their students? So I've used Valiant Hearts, actually. I used it. I've taught different like domains of socialism. Mm -hmm. I currently teach U.S. history, but I did teach world history in the past. And when I taught world history, I used Valiant Hearts oh, nice. as a text when I was teaching about World War One, And it's great because, yeah, it includes nonfiction texts and artifacts into it. I do hope that it's one of Ubisoft's developers. I do hope that they make another game like that, uh, like in that style, but covering a different event or war mm -hmm. because it's the only one they've made. But uh, I do see more games like that becoming more commonplace. I get messages a lot from teachers, um, whether or not they're trying the lessons I have on Hey Listen Games or just sharing their own experiences using games. It's getting more popular. So like when when you were in high school, did you were there like comics or manga available? In any classroom see, or in the library? See, see, no, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't really until I got to college that they they incorporated uh, that at all. Right. So, like, when I was in high school, you, that wasn't anywhere. Not even mm -hmm. you couldn't even find it in the library. Um, and teachers didn't know what you were talking about when you mentioned <laughs> that. But now, if you go into a high school classroom now, there's a good chance that like they're reading comics and manga. It's that that specific medium has kind of exploded over the past decade. Um, and I kind of feel like games are kind of where comics and manga were when we were still in high school. So it's just now starting to get popular. People are talking about it. But I think in the next 10 years, you're, you're going to see a lot more teachers attempting whether to like have all the students in their class play the game or at least as an optional text. Because student choice is an enormous thing now. Like, not Don't force your, all your students to read the same thing. Right? right? Maybe for this project, you give a collection, a selection of books and they choose one of them. I do this a lot, and one of them will be a 
game and if students want to play that for this final project that's their call right so you're i think you're, we're going to start seeing that more and then we'll see more like as assigned readings you need to play this game what what has been some of the biggest challenges you faced over the years and did you get much skepticism at all at first challenges not much mm-hmm. um just because like gaming is my life so it's it's like for <laughs> me it's fairly it was fairly easy to break transition into using games as text especially since I don't one concern is always how do you get students copies mm-hmm. of the games so they all have their own consoles or are you expecting them to pay for it on their own and I always just bring in my own PC or my uh, switch and just hook it up to the front of the room and project it and we just play together so I've never unless the game is free to play online uh, we just play together as class so that's never been a concern of mine that's fairly easy and I've never actually gotten pushback from anyone, from admin, from parents, or anything. I know I teach in New York City, so that take right. It's much more liberal here. We can kind of do things that they won't <laughs> let you do in other places. Um, but I've I've yet to get any pushback. Whenever, like the only pushback I've gotten really is when my principal asked me for the lesson plan, which is like, okay, what are the outcomes? What are the essential questions? What's the rationale? What are what standards are you hitting? But like, those are things that are expected of you anyway. Right. You know, let me let me talk a little bit about the access part of it. And I know that you play in front of your class, so that that's pretty well mitigated. Um, but we all know that that consoles aren't cheap, games aren't cheap, even the game preservation question of, you know, how do you access older games that aren't as easily playable or readily available? Where do you see changes that, that need to be made to kind of address that going forward? I think schools need to stop or districts need to stop blocking websites. Mm-hmm. Um, like YouTube is blocked in my building, which is agonizing because <laughs> there's so there's so much. Like even outside of gaming, there's a million phenomenal history content videos that I would that I do love to use, but I need to download them before I go into. I have to download them at home before I go into the building, or I need to pay for a VPN while I'm at school to do it, and it, that, it's a, it's a pain, right? Uh-huh. So like just even things like i know teachers who use fortnite quite a bit use they use fortnite creative to have students like be in the creative process and build things and in some schools that works but in other schools it's going to be blocked and they're not going to be able to use it so i i think that is a hurdle going forward in terms of accessibility it's just like there's way too many like firewalls set up to stop you from doing cool things and costs can be troubling uh, I know if you reach out to certain developers, they'll give you codes if you want more than one copy. Uh, especially a lot of indie developers are more than happy. Mm-hmm. I found to be to share with to specifically to share with educators and tech, like having a console. Yeah, that's gonna be expensive. I just I already buy it for myself, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm lucky in that regard. But I'm sure, like schools have funding. Right. At least schools in New York have a lot of funding. I know it's not gonna be like that, but. I, your school could probably, if you can properly present the rationale and the need to have this in your classroom, in your school, that your school can find money to get you a console. Like even the library in my building just got a grant for like seven Nintendo Switches to have in their library, right? So there are there are ways to find money. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, do you look at it as like if if a if a student's reading a book, right? Obviously, they can check it out, buy it, get it from the library, take it home, read it, study it, read over parts of that. That at least right now isn't necessarily a given for games, right? Just, that just because they see it in class doesn't necessarily mean they have access to it at home. Does that change how you teach uh, concepts from the game, or or how in depth you can get right now? Not really, because, like, as I said, when I play, we play together as a class. So mm-hmm. most of the students aren't playing anyway. They're mm-hmm. just watching and discussing. And in that regard, right, I have, whenever I do it, I have YouTube walkthroughs, like, ready for them. Even if they're absent, right, you're just okay. going to watch the walkthrough on YouTube. Uh-huh. And, like, watching games on YouTube and Twitch is almost more popular than actually playing games these days. So it's that's a perfectly reasonable substitute when needed. Yeah, no, perfect. Perfect. Has there been a game that challenged you the most when you were creating a lesson plan or that maybe took you in a surprising direction than than maybe you thought when you first thought about that game? 
I wouldn't say, I don't know if challenging is the right word, but I'm actually, I'm going to change the question a little bit. So it's not a game I chose. Uh-huh. So when we, in March 2020, that's when we transitioned to online mm-hmm. um, due to COVID. And I have, so like I have my normal history class, but I also at the time had my uh, video games as literature elective course where we play through video games and analyze them as literature the same way you would do with any book or short story or poem. Mm-hmm. And the unit we were doing got cut short, obviously, because we transitioned to online. So I asked the students in that class what they would like to do. And one of the students was just like, can we play a superhero game? Because because I most of the games I do are indie games, and they're not superhero games. They're just like really compelling, narrative-focused games. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, do you have a superhero in mind? And one of them is like, Batman, obviously. So... It was a challenge for me to find a game that could fit, and we did a small unit on Batman the Telltale series where they analyzed the effectiveness of dialogue choices and whether or not that's a compelling way to tell a story. And it, it went pretty well. It was something I had to like scrap together really quickly, which is challenging because it took up a lot of time. Uh-huh. Um, but it was cool, and it worked, and they had a blast doing it. Nice. Had you played that game before, or did you have to, to rush through it to see what it was like? I rushed through, so I watched a walkthrough uh-huh. of it, and so Batman Telltale series very mature, very graphic, um, and violent. So this is more for like high school seniors mm-hmm. <laughs> and on for anyone listening. But yeah, I watched a walkthrough of it, threw together a lesson and handouts that they could do, and then we uh, played it together on Twitch. Actually, I had a student who was familiar with Twitch, so I bought the game for him. He streamed it on Twitch, and the rest of us just talked in the chat. Nice. I like that. Yeah. I like that. You know, speaking of the of the content of games, obviously we know that they can vary wildly on on how mature they are and, and the, the types of subjects they talk about. So how do you how do you judge that? And is that kind of a sense on on when you meet your class, kind of sensing where they're at uh, as a whole and individually? Yeah, because so I, so since my students are older, it's not as much of a worry like mm-hmm. I can. I can play pretty much anything with them. I've considered playing Last of Us with them. Um, I just haven't gotten around to it. I might, I might still do it one day. Uh, but I do. The main thing to keep in mind is like trigger warnings and content warnings. Uh, so anytime there is something specific that could be triggering or traumatic, like I tell them up front. Uh, so like one of my favorite games to teach with is What Remains of Edith Finch. Mm-hmm. And the game is not super mature, but there is one part in particular that deals with suicide. Right. So before we play that moment, I tell them that it's going to happen, even though it's somewhat of a spoiler, just to make sure. Because I, even if I know my students super well, I don't know everything that's going on or everything that's happened in their lives. So, and that's something to to keep note of. Like, regardless of the game, just if there is anything like that, just be upfront with your students beforehand. Of course. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and we have plenty more to dive into, but stay tuned and, and we'll talk more with Zach. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening to those short messages. And Zach, I'm interested. You know, you talked about dealing with, with uh, at least so far, a lot of uh, indie developers and indie games. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with their willingness to provide codes, as you said, or, or work with you. When you look at some of the, the AAA titles there, I know Assassin's Creed has had those explorer modes, or I forget what they called exactly, uh, with some of theirs in, in more historical settings. Do you see value in, in what some of the bigger studios are doing? Yes, and um, yes and no for me personally. I'm going to say yes because like, I'm sure they're valuable to someone. Mm-hmm. The Assassin's Creed, they're the Discovery Tours, mm-hmm. the, the, those like historical add-ons. Um, and... I haven't used them because I've not since taught world history since mm-hmm. those have been created. But the thing with the thing with the game like Assassin's Creed, just like standard core game Assassin's Creed and many AAA game titles is that they're just too long and too big and games are not created in a way that's kind of accessible for teachers to use. So like if there was a moment in Assassin's Creed Odyssey that it was really cool, there's no easy way unless you play up to that moment, create a new save, 
right? And then don't accidentally overwrite that save to go back to that moment, right? Because there is no chapter select or anything. Right. So it's not, and I can't like expect teachers to be like, okay, you're going to go play Assassin's Creed Odyssey for 30 hours, get to this <laughs> moment, and that's what your lesson's going to be on. There's just, that's, that's not feasible. It's too much prep time. Whereas indie games, three to five hours, mm-hmm. two, two to five hours, right? That's feasible you can you can beat the game create the lesson and then spend a couple days in class playing the game whereas a big triple a game it's just so much harder to do that like if an example and this is like in triple games don't they don't usually have education in mind so like when i played ghost of tsushima i love the haiku elements in it Mm -hmm. where you get to a spot and the game has a mechanic for writing haikus these wonderful little poems but after you do it it doesn't let you redo it, right? So after you've, if you've gotten all the haikus in the game, you actually can't like do it again, which is like it that blows my mind. You have this wonderful <laughs> mechanic, and then it, then you're locked out of it the second you do it. Right. Whereas I would love in my like video game class to have the class go to these locations and write haikus together using that mechanic, but I can't do it because the game doesn't let you do it. And that's that's just how AAA games are typically made. They're not thinking about what teachers could, what cool things teachers and students can do. And then the the discovery tour in Assassin's Creed is cool, but like you could just go to a museum, right? You know what I mean? So like it's there's a lot of value there, and like I like for online learning, I let that's great. If I was world, if I was teaching world history during this pandemic, mm-hmm. like through the computer screen, I would probably do that. But like realistically, once things are somewhat back to normal, I could just bring my kids to a museum. Whereas when I use games, it's more what can we get out of this that you're not going to find elsewhere, right? What what is it about the game that's unique? What is it about it being a video game that is different than how you can get this information elsewhere, right? Running around in Assassin's Creed while cool, like you're not going to get anything specifically that's different from watching a video about ancient Greece, whereas if you play What Remains of Edith Finch, that story can't be told in another way. It ha- That has to be done as a video game. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it, it's been pretty cool because I'm a 90s kid too, so it, it's been fun to watch video games mature and evolve and grow. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've uh, been banging on that drum for a while, uh, and so, like, just personally, has it been fun for you to see video games has reached this point that it's grown enough as an art form to be used in, in context that, you know, 15 years ago, I don't think many people thought of gaming uh, as as a, a valuable educational tool, really. So I actually think it's like societally, if that's how you, I don't have to say, say the word, <laughs> like it's become more normal. Like it's the same thing with comics, right? Everyone knows about Marvel now, right? It just, but when I was a student in high school, I had like a couple people I could talk about it with. And now it's <laughs> everywhere. So games are starting to like become that in a way. It's just like it is gaming is now, I think, the biggest entertainment industry only behind like professional sports. Mm-hmm. So like it's huge. But it, I wouldn't say they're more, there's more educational value now than even in the 90s. Cause I'm sure during the 90s, there were a ton of cool games that we could have, that teachers could have brought in. Like if it was, acceptable could have brought in we could have done really cool stuff with it even games on the nes like there's a lot you could learn a lot about storytelling from the original zelda or the original Mm -hmm. mario it's just like especially the original zelda you're just reading text right there's no one speaking to you but i do it's it's cool it's great that it's now more acceptable today that we're actually getting used especially with this like indie renaissance that we're in indie games are just so so good these days we're spoiled Oh my goodness! Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. So, talk to me a little, a little bit about Halos and Games. When did that kind of enter your your headspace, and and why did you want to create it? So, like I said, Halos and Games, I published it like officially online like two and a half years ago now. It's like back in March of twenty nineteen, yeah. And so I've been I had been teaching with games for a little bit while before, but. Basically, when I started teaching with games, I would go, I would always go online and like Google, like teaching with video games or lesson plans for video games, just to see what other people were doing. And I found nothing, always, never, never a single handout, never a single lesson plan about using video games. Whereas if you want to use like comics or movies, there are actually a lot of resources out there. 
for teachers to borrow and steal, but nothing about video games. There is there were like scholarly articles about using games in certain ways, like a lot of stuff about using ancient Civ mm-hmm. and uh like Kerbal Space Program, like lots of stuff like around those types of games, but nothing about using video games as text for like as literature. So I just had to start making these lesson plans myself. And for like for anyone who doesn't know, a lesson plan for teaching is basically rationale for the lesson, your content aim for your lesson, the objectives, the essential questions, what standards are you hitting state and national, um, the handout, like what questions are you specifically asking students, the like the slides you're making. So I just had to start making all of these myself. And after a couple of years, I listened to you guys, and you listened to them also, I listened to an episode of the Kind of Funny Games cast. Mm-hmm. And it was an episode where Tim and Greg and probably two other people, I forget who though, were talking about uh, breaking into the gaming industry. And basically they said, you do something unique, have something unique. And on my mind, I was like, well, I have something unique. <laughs> it's like, no one else, no one else does really what I do. So I just started putting, t- teaching myself a little bit of web design because I didn't know how to make a website. <laughs> um, so I started putting together the website and like just trying to picture what it would be. And it's basically turned into like a catalog of all the lessons I've done. There's like probably like 43 or 44 now different activities for different games that you can use. Mm-hmm. And it's also a personal blog where anytime I put up a new lesson, I'll explain, use the blog as my rationale for this. What the, What is this game about? How will I use it? And also blogging about my experience actually teaching with the games. Whenever I use it in my classroom, I'll talk about how it went and put student handouts so that they can see how my students actually responded to the prompts. And it's all free, everything. All the curriculum, all the lesson plans, all the handouts, everything on it is completely free. I don't, like teachers don't make a lot of money. So I don't, I'm not in the mind to ever charge teachers for anything. It's just all there. Please go borrow, steal, do whatever you want with it. And this, the day that I launched it, I, I first shared, I didn't have a Twitter then yet. Um, or I had a Twitter, I just didn't use it. <laughs> uh, but I shared it on Reddit and it just kind of like immediately blew up. People were like, oh, this is so cool. Um especially a lot of gamers on Reddit. So it just kind of it worked out well. So And I just immediately got a lot of really great uh, positive feedback, a lot of good constructive feedback, specifically around the design of the website and how I can make it a little bit better. And it's just kind of grown in popularity since. There's now uh, like over 2,500 members on it, which being a member just means that like you signed up. When right. you want a lesson plan, you just have to put in your email. So like over 2,500 people have actually put in their email to get... The lesson plans is great. I get people every week um, emailing me about uh, lessons that they're like they're stealing ideas or they're copying a lesson or just modifying it for their specific students, which is wonderful. I get I like I was never on a podcast before. Hey, listen, games. I've now I think you're like podcast number twenty six nice. or something now, which is awesome. And like I have a book coming out about teaching with video games soon. So and then like alongside you for the for the future class, it's just like it's kind of these past two and a half years have been pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I, I got to ask you a little bit about the future class. So what, how did you find out? And what was what were your immediately immediate feelings once the, the news broke? So I I didn't find it at first. My wife found it. Um, she saw the tweet from Jeff Keeley talking uh, or mentioning the future class for the first time. And she was just like, I think I'm going to I'm going to nominate you for this. And I was just like, all right, I'm, I don't think I'm going to get it. I'm not in the industry. So I just I didn't I didn't know exactly. I just assumed that it was a video game industry thing, mm-hmm. but so she filled it out and yeah, I got like alongside you, I was chosen as one of the future class members. And I, I think I'm the only person really not in the industry. There might be like one or two other people. Um, I'm the only educator in the group, but it's cool. The, the day I when I remember getting the email and I was just like, huh, they actually, I was like, they chose me. And I didn't know. And even after when I got the email, I didn't know it was only 50 people. Uh huh. Right. When I learned it was 50 people, that's when it set in. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> that's yeah, right. Exactly. I'm, exactly. Sure you had a sim- I'm sure you had a similar feeling. Oh, wow. Only 50 people. Exactly. The, the, the funny thing is when when I found out I was chosen, I told my girlfriend, I'm like, well, they must have chosen a lot. 
<laughs> like for me to be on there, I must have been like like number like three hundred or something. Like <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, I, I I feel you there. Uh, you know, since you're not in the industry, meeting that that group of people there, what what has that been like, and what have you learned from from that that hugely diverse group of people that that we've gotten to meet? I've definitely learned kind of what it's like to be on the dev side of things because mm-hmm. um, I don't like outside reading Jason Schreier articles like I don't I don't or like no clip documentaries I don't get too much um, like behind the scenes talk because I'm not personally friends with too many devs like I'm friendly with a couple of them so it's been really interesting hearing a lot of their stories uh, and just getting that perspective because it is, I do have students who have, are interested in going into that field I do have a student who had graduated and is in college now for game development so it's good just to know so that I can share, like relay a lot of this information to my students. Nice. And, you know, I, I know that, that Hey Listen Games have been going officially for two and a half years. To see where it's come so far, like, did you have expectations on on growth or where you wanted to see it beforehand? And, and how does that compare to what you've been able to achieve so far? I didn't. I still don't have expectations, really, because I don't know what to even expect. Like if if I can just get teachers using video games, then that that's a win in my book. Like even this, I'm working now on like I mentioned the book or it's a teaching manual to mm-hmm. get teachers started with teaching with video games. Even that, I never thought I would be an author one day. But someone he works at the or he founded the company Geek Therapeutics, and they mm-hmm. they use video games for like therapy reasons. And I've done panels um, with him. It's Dr. Anthony Bean. And he reached out to me and he has a little publishing company. He's like, you should write a book. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this has been like, a, that's been a, now a process for like a year and a half, me writing this book because I write blog posts, but I'm not, a, I'm not a very strong writer. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I really don't know even where like the, I don't know what the end point of Hey Listen Games is, or if it's just like an ongoing blog, or if I, I don't know if I'll do it forever, if I, Right, if I stop teaching, then is it tenable to continue, right, with this website? We'll we'll see where it goes. But for now, it's great. Like, and I I love talking about. It. I'm going to PAX West in a couple of weeks to speak on two panels mm-hmm. about it. So it, it it's definitely been a lot of fun. I mean, how rewarding has it been to see other educators reach out to you? You know, ask questions and and really take an interest and and be at least partly inspired by but what you by what you've been doing. Oh, I love it. It's my favorite thing. I just think of all the other like video game nerd introverts like I was in <laughs> high school who are like going to get cool things to do in school. Like I I have that student I mentioned who graduated and is now in college for game development was kind of one of those students I was talking about earlier where he was in a senior year mm-hmm. in the Dominican Republic and then started back over freshman year here. And he was just like, all right, I'll do the minimum to get through the, these another four years of high school. Um, but when we started using games, like he just blossomed. He would write pages about it because that's something he was interested in. And it was co- like, if we were connecting to his like expertise, he's an expert gamer. Uh, so just like know that that opportunity is gonna be out there for others is, is really like heart- heartening. Nice. I got to ask you a little bit about this book now. I know that you mentioned it's it's been a process going from writing for for blogs to to channeling the the language or or the the process of writing for a book. Has that I mean did you did you reach out to other people to kind of help you with that process or has that just kind of been trial and error and has it come easy for you? I reached out to my wife uh-huh. who <laughs> she edits she helps edit everything I write because she's a better writer than I am. But then Luckily, the uh, publisher that I'm working with has a an editor that they work with. So they hired an editor to rip my writing to shreds even more, um, <laughs> which did, that's honestly, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I remember when I first got into journalism, I got my first article back edited and it was just like bleeding red. And I just sat there and was yeah. like... Oh, <laughs> but when you get those first edits back, like, do you, did you have to train yourself to, to be okay with just, just blatant and, and just, just the, the constructive criticism and, and just, just take it well? See, no, because I do the same thing to my students, like, especially since they're not uh, native English speakers, when they hand me something in English, I'm just like, 
nope, grammar wrong here, spelling wrong here, just like to re constantly reinforce, right, for them how to write uh, properly in English. Because, I mean, learning a new language is hard. Learning to speak oh, yeah. a new language is hard. Learning to write that language can be a lot more difficult for a lot of people just because, like, in English is crazy. Yes. All, like, all the intricacies of English is just asinine. So, like, <laughs> I do constantly <laughs> have to correct. I never, and I'll, I'll make a point right now, I never take off points for, like, issues in writing or English, right? I, that's just all constructive feedback. Everything I do, and that's what was done to me, so it's fine. Yeah, see, because there's a million rules, and then there's a million exceptions, and then it... Yep. <laughs> yeah, I feel that pain, even to this day sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So for people who want to help support Hey Listen Games and what you do, what is the best way for them to support you? The two ways to support me, I'll say. One way is just, if you know any teachers or educators, please share it. It's heylistengames.org with them. Um, like I said, everything there is free. Mm -hmm. Just like get the word out there that it exists and the second one would be financially if you so i don't i don't charge anything but i do have a patreon mm -hmm. um it's patreon.com slash games like the lowest tier is a dollar all right i understand right twelve dollars a year for a teacher that's that's reasonable i understand teachers don't have a lot of money but there are different tiers so or you don't need to be a teacher so if it, anyone if you're if you want to support the work i'm doing with education and video games you can support me there Nice. And, you know, I know you mentioned The Last of Us as a game you were considering playing through with, with the class. Are there other games that you haven't done yet that, that you think might be uh, an interesting lesson? I want so that my website's called Hey Listen Games. And like I said, that's that's from that's an homage to The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And I want to use the Zelda game so badly but I just haven't found a proper way to do so yet because it's a triple A game and they're super long. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I can't just play Ocarina of Time with them because that's like 25 hours. And that's tied lugging my N64 to school. That's just a pain. Um, <laughs> so, but I will, one day I'll find a way to use a Zelda game because there's like, I, I learned so much as a kid from Ocarina of Time, like beyond just like, that was so much reading mm -hmm. for me. I think it was seven at the time it came out. Just the social aspect of it. I played it alongside my brothers. It was just super collaborative between the two of us. You'd go to school the next day, talk about it in the lunchroom, because online stuff didn't really, outside of like game facts, things like didn't exist yet, or online right. communities didn't really exist yet. So you'd go and talk about it at school, then go home and try to remember what people said. Uh, so like there was a whole social aspect of the game. I learned so much from Ocarina of Time. Um, so I do hope to use a Zelda game one day. There's a lot to be learned there. I like it. You know, and, and speaking to The Last of Us, I mean, The Last of Us is always that example I'll tell people who aren't big gamers, right? Where I'm like, try that game out, and it's it's every bit as emotional and thrilling and depressing and exciting as any major blockbuster or, or even Oscar film you're going to see. Where, When you look at a game like that, where do you have an idea where you'd want to take a lesson in that? Yeah, so like I said, one of the courses I teach are video games is literature, and I think like I would do both Last of Us games if I could. Mm -hmm. Last of Us Part Two is double the length of the first game, so just time-wise, the first game kind of fits nicely. It is like ten to thirteen hours, depending on how long it take, how long or how fast you are. But I think a good like fleshed-out unit could be built around the storytelling in that game and why like it succeeds like why that story is enhanced by being a video game, right? There's constantly like, oh, video games are just like movies today. And that's sort of because of The Last of Us, right? right. That game really kind of started that cinematic experience trend, but they're like, it works as a video game, mm -hmm. right? And, and I know the HBO show is coming out soon, which I'm super excited for, but like there, are, when I, when you play The Last of Us, you get so much like lore and side story through picking up notes right and even like when you're in the like the sewer area and you're getting like the whole tale of the community of the people who live there through the notes that you're picking up like that's stuff that happens in video games you can't really do that kind of story in another medium so i would i would love to do a whole unit on that and like why it being a video game enhances that story nice and when the show comes out i'd love to do like a comparison piece that's like a college level course, though. I can't. I don't think I'll ever be able to do that in high school. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Do you ever see yourself going to to be like a college professor? Is that something that interests you? I've thought about it, but 
the pay isn't really much better where I am. And as a high school teacher, I have a good union here in New York City, mm-hmm. which always important to take in mind, support your unions. Unions can be very important. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm open to it. I took like in college, it's what it's actually like thinking back. It's one of the things that kind of put me on this path. Cause I, there, I didn't get a, get a chance to take it, but there was a course on video games. It was an English co- course on video games. And I remember seeing the textbook requirements was an Xbox 360 at the time, um, which is hilarious. <laughs> That that's the best reason to go out and get a console ever. Be like, I need it for class. Like, I gotta, <laughs> I yeah. gotta do it. <laughs> it. It's funny. I'll play um, some games to to review here, and I always have to tell my girlfriend, I'm like, no, I got a game this weekend, and it's it's a, it's a strange uh, mindset to get into when when you you have to do something that for so long has been a leisure activity, for lack of a better way to put it. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. So it's like if I don't think I'll ever go out of my way to become a college professor but like if a college reached out to me and was like we think you would be a good fit then sure but i also don't know if i want to get a phd or an edd because that often becomes a requirement at the college <laughs> level and that just sounds like a big headache it does it does. <laughs> well zach thank you so much where can people follow you on your social media accounts i'm at twitter uh it's at hey listen games underscore don't forget the underscore there some account that got suspended for being inactive still has it without Ooh. the underscore. So maybe I'll get it one day. But for now, it's at HeyListenGames underscore. And that's pretty much the only social media I use. Instagram's like, I have like 10 followers. It's like family. <laughs> <laughs> but the like, check out the blog on um, my website, HeyListenGames.org, because... And if if you do want to contact me, not on, I know understand not everyone wants or wants to use social media. So on Halos and Games, there is a contact form that you could fill out if you just want to shoot me an email. Perfect. Well, Zach, thank you again. It has been a pleasure and long overdue. We need to do it again much sooner. Than... I'm I'm down whenever. Perfect. And if you ever find yourself in Vegas, let us know. We'd I'd love to to connect with you in person one of these days. Absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, so Zach, what are, what are you looking at for the rest of your week? Do you have any big plans outside of getting ready for a new school year? I am going this weekend. I'm going on a little semi-vacation with some of my college friends. There you go. Who I haven't seen in a while. One of them has a house in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. I don't know if you know that area. I don't. Nice nature, nice nature area, but we're going to go chill there. School-wise... New York City actually starts a little late this year because we ended a little late last year. So my first day with students isn't until September 13th. But I'll like over the next month, I'll have to start planning my actual curriculum that I'll be teaching because I've I've been putting that off to do gaming stuff. So, (laughs) (laughs) and my last question for you: Do you have a current favorite game that you you've played recently? Current favorite game. Let me pull up the list of games that I've played this year. It's on the GG app for anyone interested. I think it's made by a kind of funny best friend. I recently played... So I just recently played Super Metroid and Metroid Samus Returns just to get hyped for Metroid Dread. Uh Uh-huh. That's coming out. But... Oh, okay. So I'm going to talk about two games. My favorite-ish game of the year so far is Before Your Eyes. It's an indie game, and it's about an hour and a half, two hours, and it's a narrative experience, and you play the game by blinking. It It's on Steam, and it uses the webcam to track your blinking. Oh, wow. And it sounds like a gimmick, but it's genius. The way that it's actually used as a tool to tell the story in this game, it's remarkable. I like, don't even want to say more because I don't want to spoil anything. But there's a blog post about it on Halos and Games if you Uh want to read more of my thoughts there. But I also played the uh, Mass Effect trilogy for the first time this year with the Legendary Edition. It's just one of those franchises I missed. And I got the Legendary Edition. I sunk 80 hours in, played all three games back to back. And yeah, it's awesome. What a great series. Oh, I agree with you there. What are are your thoughts on three then? Because I know obviously the... the Specifically, the latter part of 3 is always a controversial one among fans. So 3, the thing, so I would bet if I played 3 
like the moment it came out, I would have been disappointed. But the way the Legendary Edition works is that it comes with all of the DLC already there in the game. Right. So I, like, by accident played a lot of the DLC without even knowing. It's like, whenever I would get to a super cinematic part in the game, I was like, this has got to be DLC, because <laughs> it's not like the rest of the game. And But a lot of that DLC really contextualized a lot of the craziness that happens at the very end of the, act, of the main story. Mm-hmm. And... I could see, like, if you didn't have that context, certain things would not really have made sense or it would have felt like it came out of nowhere. But because I played the DLC first, right at the very end, it didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. I was like, oh, okay, it's, they're talking about the things that happened in the DLC. Right. Right. So it feels like if it, at the time it came out, the DLC was probably like a band aid to poor storytelling. But because I played it the way it's like, intentionally meant to be played, it was kind of fine. I didn't. I think two is by far the best of the three, but I enjoyed Mass Effect three quite a bit still. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. Two seems to have that right mix of storytelling plus game gameplay improvements from the first game uh, that, that yeah. they were able to build on. And so su- I don't like Suicide Mission is one of the best missions probably in games. Like that, it, it did li- it did live up to the hype. Oh my goodness, yes, yeah. I, I, it, you know, I know we know next to nothing about the next Mass Effect game, but I just can't wait. I just, <laughs> I hope. Okay, so now, he, but here's the question: Do I play Andromeda? I'm told it's been patched quite a bit. Uh, my, I would say no. <laughs> um, I okay, even beyond the the bugginess, which I'm sure has been fixed by now, I don't think its story captures the same spirit of that trilogy. And I think that okay. that is the, the bigger fault of why I've never gone back to that game. So I would say you're probably fine to pass on it. <laughs> um, just, just from that, that side of things. I won't touch it. Maybe if they ever make a sequel to it, I'll, I'll play it, but I guess no need. Right. Right. If, if they bring out an Andromeda legendary edition somewhere down the line, right. <laughs> Zach, thank you again, my friend. It's been truly an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you to everybody, of course, for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at LandPartiesPod, at Smitty2447, or at LucasAgan on Twitter. And as always, guys, we love your faces. (laughs) 